welcome to the first ever episode of The Artiste. My name is Luke Gibson and I'll be your host for this podcast where we interview artists about their craft and their lives. On the online etymology dictionary, the definition of artiste is one skillful in some art, not considered one of the fine arts. It's really a fancy way to say artist. Other definitions include a professional entertainer, especially a singer or a dancer. Beyond this, synonyms of artiste include performer, trooper, showman, artist, player, musician, actor, actress, thespian, comic, comedian, comedienne, clown, impressionist, mime artist, conjurer, magician, acrobat, star, and superstar. Tony Martin, welcome to the program. How many of these titles describe you and how multi-skilled do people need to be in order to survive working in such a cutthroat industry as yours? Well, there's quite a lot going on in that introduction. So I'm the artiste, is that right, Luke? Uh, yes, that's that's you're you're the artiste. I'm the host. I'm the bullshit artiste, I think. But because the word artiste, I've never been called an artiste before. I always think of it uh, as having to do with background artiste. That's really the only time you hear it said, like on a set or something. They'll go, "Can someone move the background artiste?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's a slightly kind of sarcastic way to refer to extras. So are you feeling that today? Are you sensing that vibe? Or I think artiste is one level up from an artist. Right. We'll see. It's I, French. I guess technically I am uh, some kind of artist, but then I look at my resume and I'm going voice of barge ass, <laughs> host of shoot the celebrity in the ass creator of the Brown Album. I mean, these are not projects you want to attach the word artist to, I would have thought. <laughs> high-end, high-end stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like, how many titles would you um, relate oh, to there? Have, well, I, have I missed any out? Well, I have, I must admit, I have done everything pretty much on that list. I haven't done any ballet dancing. Okay. But I do even do dancing now in Damien Cowell's disco machine. But I do feel like... I'm not doing any of them properly. Like <laughs> I, I sometimes give myself a telling off. I, I go, just do one thing. Do one thing and get that right. I'm always jumping from one thing to the other. Like with stand-up comedy, I've had, I think I worked out, I've been doing stand-up comedy for, it'll be 29 years this year. Wow. But I've only done it for about 14 of those years. So I've had like a 14-year hiatus. stand-up <laughs> hiatus. I'm just constantly going on hiatus. If I had just stuck to it for the whole 29 years, I reckon I could be really good at it by It now. might have worked out. <laughs> it might have, you know, taken off. Exactly. Uh, we don't want to label you, but I want to get confusion out of the way. Sure. How often are you having to say to people, I'm Tony Martin, the comedian. I do. Versus the act. I mean, is that happening less and yeah, less now? Well, no, because now there's the German cyclist. Oh, no, tell me about that. Uh, he's Well, he's German, and yet he's Tony Martin. Is Tony Martin a German name? I thought maybe he's English who's moved over, but no, apparently he's fully German. Really? But uh, And you might say, how do you get confused with him? Well, it happens on Twitter all the time. It I'll does. occasionally get a baffling <laughs> cycling uh, tweet and go, oh, no, this is for the other Tony Martin. What, um, you need to come in and get your brakes checked? <laughs> <laughs> it's just advice. Just try harder in the Tour de France. So the Tony Martin in Australia that you... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right. The one who was Nettie Smith in yes. Blue Murder, which yes. is my favourite all-time Australian drama, by the way. Really? So I'm kind of a fan of the other Tony Martin. And the, the only time it really 
became an issue was, do you remember John Clark's show, The Games? Yes. We were both in that. Oh, boy. And I remember Clarkie calling me up and going, what are we going to do about the credits? How does this work? Because I don't think that's ever happened before. Like, do we put Tony Martin brackets one? One. (laughs) But in the end, I agreed to be billed as the other Tony Martin. So the credits said, with guests, Tony Martin and the other Tony Martin. And then I briefly uh, toyed with the idea of actually changing my name to the other Tony Martin. Well, I was going to ask that. Is that something that you had had considered maybe having a sitting down at a cafe and having a meeting with him and just say, look, I want to talk to you. There can't be two Tony Martins. There was actually some trouble about, and I've written about this, because um, what happens is you're not supposed to have two people in Actors' Equity with the same name. It's why they have Michael J. Fox, because there's already Michael Fox. Okay. And that happened here, but I joined Equity in 1986 when it was still like a card file, (laughs) so there was no, you know, cross-referencing on the computer, and then I did get a call in the mid-90s where they said, would you mind changing your name? And I said, look, it's a bit late now. I've got an album out, you know, I'm on the radio. So it did get a bit testy there for a while. And someone at Equity actually accused me of, well, this is what they said, like we were having a big row about on the phone. And finally, a guy just said, look, Tony hasn't been getting a lot of his checks. (laughs) Okay, are you accusing me of stealing Reverend Bob royalty money? Is it like I'm getting it? Imagine that I'm getting a check for like you know twenty nine cents for him being you know on heartbreak high, <laughs> and I'm popping down to the bank with it. So it, and I got quite angry about that and just refused to change my name. Um, but I did at the Logies this year. I bumped into his wife, the wonderful Rachel Blake, and she um, she said to me how it's become a joke around the house, like. You know, I had a book out last year and, and he'll go, hey, check it out. I've got a new book in the shops. You know, so it is – I think – I've never actually met him, but as I understand it, there is – it's now kind of a joke. Okay. Nothing too serious there. No. Uh, now, tell me – I've got to ask the big question. What is comedy? <laughs> oh, God, that's and, a big one, Luke. And you, you are Come an on. expert. You've been doing it for 14 of 29 years. Oh, what is comedy? Um I really don't know. I mean, is it something that's meant to be funny? I mean, I, I've never stopped. And that's too big of a question. I can tell you what certain kinds of comedy are like. I don't know. I'm one of those people who, you know, the only time I think about questions like this is when I'm being interviewed or or a podcast or something, and then sure. you have to actually stop and have a look at what it is you do. But. I don't know. I mean, I've always liked comedy and I've always wanted to do comedy because I liked it when I was a kid. I mean, you know, when I was – I mean, I grew up in New Zealand and there wasn't a lot of comedy. We had literally one comedian who I just mentioned, John Clark, and then he left for Australia and that left nothing funny at all (laughs) uh, being made. No one was funny in New Zealand. Not for a couple of years. And speaking of New Zealand, um, I've – I put you on a whiteboard. Um, oh, is it here? No, can I see no, it? it's still at home. Is that your house? <laughs> By the way, congratulations on doing a podcast, Luke. Oh, thank you very much. Because we've known each other. We should say you were a location manager on Upper Middle Bogan. That's Correct. How I met you. That's and right. Series I, one and two. And then uh, I discovered that you were uh, a sort of doyen of the musical theatre. Correct. And now you have a podcast. This is great. I know. I'm really moving up in the world, aren't I? <laughs> well done. <laughs> Where's this whiteboard? Well, the 
whiteboards at home, but like I, I tried to as part of my research. I, mm. I was I was trying to put you on a graph. Oh, okay. And I thought, okay, how do we approach this chronologically? Um, do we do it by topic? You know, books, film, TV. Mm. Eventually, I went. We're going to do it by phases, and then. <laughs> okay. And then I've got too many phases happening, so I've just gone, there's phase one, New Zealand, right. and yes. phase two, Australia. Okay. So let's talk about phase one to begin with. New Zealand, you you are a Kiwi. Everyone yeah. still calls you a Kiwi. Yes. When was the last time you were actually in New Zealand? Last time I was there was in 2009 to research a book I was writing called A Nest of Occasionals, and I went back to my, <laughs> went back to Tikawiti, which is where I was born and lived uh, until I was seven. And it was exactly the same as I remember it in 1969. Nothing changed. Except for a giant Bunnings. Or not a Bunnings, it's like the the other one they have over there that's like Bunnings had landed in the middle of the town like a spaceship. Uh, But apart from that, it was exactly the same. Did people remember you? No. I was never – like I never did anything – I never was famous in New Zealand. I shifted over here when I was uh, 21 and the only thing I'd done that had been slightly well-known was I was on uh, an FM radio station in Hamilton, New Zealand. I've written about this in one of my books. I found a room uh, at the radio station that just had thousands of uh, records, uh, LPs in, that didn't have cover art. They were just in slips. Right. And each one had like a name on it, like David Bowie or Mick Jagger. And what they were was they were interview records, something they used to do back in the 70s and 80s where David Bowie would uh, sit in a studio in, like, L.A. and answer a series of prepared questions and then they would cut the, the all the uh, questions out and they'd just send this out as a record to every radio station in the world so the local announcer could redo the questions and it would right. sound like David Bowie had just popped into, like, Wanganui FM. <laughs> like, and go, well, oh, you wouldn't believe it. David Bowie's joined us. Thanks for joining us, David. And then you'd hear, thanks very much. And then he'd go, oh, it's great to be here. And the, the, the album would just have would have all these answers but it would also just have bits where he where David Bowie would go yes <laughs> or no not at all so i just went what if you changed the question so i just started doing these bogus interviews where i would interview Bowie or whoever it was and then I went hang on it doesn't have to be an interview and I'd start having them all talking to each other I remember once I was doing a doubles table tennis with like Tom Waits and Phil Collins and (laughs) you know Mark E. Smith from The Fall and but people hadn't now that's quite common changing the questions is Mm. a standard comedy trope but in the 80s in the Waikato in New Zealand people were calling in the station going what I don't understand what's going on. How is this happening? Is this really? <laughs> did did David Bowie really claim that he'd recorded his last album up Brian Eno's ass? You know, that was the that was the sort of juvenile level to the comedy, and that briefly got me sort of famous in the local area. But no one knew who was doing it because I used a fake name. But that was the only thing I did in New Zealand, and and a lot of plays. I was in a, a sketch comedy group, but we never were successful. Did you do any musical theatre? Yes. I was the judge in a musical production of Toad of Toad Hall 
at the Auckland Town Hall back in, that would have been 83. So I did do a bit of that. Can you remember any songs from that? No. And I really, he only had one song. And I did it the real, you know, like Rex Harrison style, the sort of talk singing, which I still do to this day in, you know, in the disco machine. A lot of my songs are talk singing. Now, I hear that you spent a bit of time on a boat Yes. Growing up. How, that's right. What was that all about? Well, one of my mother's husbands, um, I'm not allowed to say what number, how many there have been, there's been too much trouble, but one of her, her last husband uh, was an amateur marlin fisherman, so we would spend uh, weekends just out at sea on a boat. And in fact, um, for a couple of years in a row, we spent like two or three months out at sea. And what did you do out there? Uh, reading comics, mostly. I remember taking a huge, really, to my stepdad was not impressed. Like, we're going out to the majesty of the ocean and I've got, like, a suitcase <laughs> full of comic books. <laughs> and the other thing I did was listening to, um, oh, there was a fair bit of fishing, obviously, and jumping off the boat into the sea and getting attacked by jellyfish, all of that. But... I would just, um, you know, uh, listen to the radio. We had like a radio out there. So I'd, that was where I heard a lot of radio comedy for the first time, in particular uh, The Goon Show. Right. Which is very much an influence. I mean, the thing I'm doing at the moment, Sizzletown, is full of all that stuff about dolphins being trafficked <laughs> by my producer. I mean, that you can that's really influenced by the the sound effects on the goon show and how old were you like did you have to have oh. a letter to get out of school for <laughs> no, that long no i think i was doing I, I i have a memory that i was maybe doing school via the radio like the kid on skippy you know, remember that how he did <laughs> I do. went to school on a like a CB radio or something. I seem to remember. A and bit you of could that. do that in the ocean. I th- I think you could. I think there was there was a lot of facilities out there in the ocean. Uh, yeah. So for what period of time of your life was that? That you, was months in, at a time. That was about around seven. I would have been ten or eleven, twelve, around that age. And, and then uh, you know when you didn't have to do it anymore, did you return to normality easily? There was a divorce, and suddenly I didn't have access to the sea anymore, and I moved to Hamilton, where I lived in a tiny flat with my my mum and my uh, half-brother, and uh, Hamilton is really as as far inland as you can get on the <laughs> North Island. So, yeah, I was suddenly land-based. I mean, looking back now, did people think you were funny? Not really. I, you know, I I like to say that I wasn't the class clown, but I, I wrote for him. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was one of his writers. But I actually had a terrible sense of humour when I was at school. Like, I find things that I did at school, and I was good at cartooning and drawing, but the writing that accompanied those was quite pun-based and unfunny. And what it was that got me up to scratch was performing in front of a live audience, because suddenly when you're performing in front of a live audience, they'll tell you what's funny and what's not. So you've got to either get really funny real fast or move on to something else. Do you remember that first gear? Uh, yes. I, well, because I, in New Zealand there wasn't any live comedy till about a year after I moved to Australia. Live comedy in New Zealand really started around about 85, 86, and I moved here in the middle of 85. And up until then, 
the only way you could get a laugh was to be in a play. So I was in a lot of uh, – I was, did four years of amateur theatre and I was in a lot of plays. A lot of them were mostly sort of, um, you know, Noel Coward and British uh, farces and things like that. So I heard the sound of laughter from an audience but not through material I was generating. Right. And then one of the amateur theatre groups I was in – uh, had a review, a comedy review. So everyone, I got into that, and then I was able to write sketches. And I remember, I remember the first sketch I wrote was a parody of oh God. It was there used to be a thing in the eighties called Women's Space at uh, uni- it Probably should come back going by current uh, <laughs> situations, but it, at the university they'd have Women's Space, so it was an area that only women could go into, right, and feel safe. Men were banned. Men were banned, and so there were a lot of men who were going, oh, as they always do. Well, what about a man's space? You know, which is <laughs> I think there are plenty of man's spaces, but so I just did a sketch with a, about a couple of guys on TV claiming that we men need their own space, and it was a piss take of that that syndrome. And and that was the first time I heard something I'd written getting a laugh. And what was your reaction to that? Oh, just a desperate desire to do more of it. It's like, you know, I imagine what heroin must be like. <laughs> so, it, yeah, and, I, and then, of course... Um, you discover that not everything you write is funny. And so, you know, one in four might get a laugh and then you, you learn quickly to get used to failure, uh, which is which is what comedy is about. Comedy is about constant... Yeah, here's your answer. What is comedy? It's about constantly uh, discovering your own limitations. Well, and is that what you are continuing to do? Absolutely. I mean, if I'm running in new stand-up material, I'll pop down to somewhere like the local in St Kilda or or even the uh, dreaded Exford in the city and do, you know, I might have 10 minutes of new material and the very best I'll get out of that is four. So there's six minutes of absolute death. And so even at my age now, with all of my experience, I'm still regularly acquainting myself with a joke that doesn't work, dying is, in the arts. <laughs> is that, is that a, a pretty um, uh, across-the-board ratio for you, like a 40% strike rate? I mean, that, uh, I would consider yeah. that to be quite high. That is quite that is quite high for me. Like when I was starting, it would be one and a half minutes out of ten. Now I'm up to about four. Or what happens is you get four that works, and then you get another two that needs some work, and then you've just got the rest of it is like, well, that was funny in my lounge room when I was holding a <laughs> like a pen, pretending it was a microphone, which is what I do. And uh, yeah, it just has to be thrown out. I mean, I don't know what the ratio is for other comics, but. I would imagine that's fairly standard. Okay. Nobody just comes out and everything they do is brilliant. Oh, actually, there probably are a couple. Ross Noble is a one-off kind of freak of stand-up who can, you know, do a new three-hour show every night, and I've seen him do it. He's amazing. And let's fast forward. I don't really know how to classify what you did with him in the UK. <laughs> um, run me through, how did you meet Ross Noble, and then how did that evolve into you doing what you did in the UK? Well, it, uh, let's see. Um I saw Ross Noble on stage in Edinburgh. I was in Edinburgh in 1999 doing a show with Judith Lucy and I, that was really when Ross was just getting onto everyone's radar and I was just amazed by him. He was incredible. He was the host of um, uh, Late and Live, which is notoriously the toughest 
comedy room in in the world probably it's like a nightly sort of thunderdome and he was the host of it and i've seen you know i remember seeing daniel kitson come out and get canned off the stage after one line and ross just reveled in it he just uh, it just made him more the more they attacked him the more powerful he became because a lot of his show if you've seen it is him just taking things that the audience throw at him and turning them into material and so I was always a massive fan. And then when we did the show Get This in 2006, he came on that quite regularly. And he, um, yeah, and I, I would see him over the years. And, of course, he's lived here in Australia from time to time. Um, and he, yeah, he just called me up one day and said, I'm got, I've got a show in England where – uh, I'm just going to be on my motorbike and I'm going to say to people on Twitter, what should I do today? And whatever they suggest, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and so for three months, I was part of a, a team of people who followed Ross around. There was He was on his motorbike. The show was called Freewheeling. Uh, and, yeah, he we would just go to a service station. He would just go... What shall I do today? And someone, and there would be a thousand tweets would arrive. A lot of them would just be get fucked, <laughs> and that you know, I my job was to go through them all and say we could do this, and what if we did that? And you know, they'd say, "Hey Ross, um, what if you got a million monkeys and gave them a million typewriters? Do you reckon they'd type the complete works of Shakespeare?" And Ross would go, <laughs> "Let's find out," and and he'd just uh, he'd go, "Who's got some monkeys?" And and we have three different monkey enclosures. Call us, and so we drive there, and then who's got some typewriters? And then we'd we'd go all over England or the UK, going you know, Ireland and Scotland and Wales, just meeting people and getting their typewriters and. Then we go to the monkey enclosure and try and get the monkeys to type, and then that wouldn't work. So Ross would tweet, "Who's got some monkey costumes?" And then <laughs> some people in, you know, Sheffield might go, "We've got fifty monkey costumes." So we drive there and get their monkey costumes, and then Noble would tweet, "Who wants to help us fake the footage?" And then we, <laughs> some people would come down to a pub car park and put on the monkey costumes, and then Ross would conduct them in a reenactment of. 2001 and that just went on for three months until eventually there was a tv series it was insane so your role was would, is that a producer role I was, is I that was called creative producer so it was kind of just filtering the tweets mainly because he ross is so popular that he would just get a thousand tweets a day and so you've got to go through them and go is this real is this something and if we got this, what could we do with it? And, and yeah, just kind of uh, sorting through it. How exhausting was that? It was really exhausting because it was like 18-hour days and a lot of it just driving all over the country. And the great thing was because we had no idea where we were going to be in four hours, we'd have to book a comment. It was 14 of us in three vans following him and four of the people in the uh, 14 were just there to get people to sign release forms. Oh, wow. Because if you just have someone way off in the background now, you have to get their signature Mm. or else the segment can't go to air. So, you know, we would not know where we were going to be staying. So often we'd, you know, go to, you know, to Bath or somewhere and they go, well... The only hotel available is this really expensive five-star hotel. We go, oh, okay. If we have to. If we have to. But then sometimes we'd be staying at like faulty towers. So it was it was crazy. Is that something you, looking back now to when you were in New Zealand, is that something that you could ever um, even uh, imagine no, happening? not at all. Not at all. I just, you know, there was... 
I mean, I, I went to high school in Hamilton, you know, and the idea of ever being able to do anything in show business was just not even conceivable. That just didn't happen. You never even for a moment thought that you could get a job doing this. You're in New Zealand. How do you make the decision to move to Australia? Well, that it was, again, just like almost everything I've done, just a series of flukish accidents. Like I was working at a radio station as a copywriter, and this was in Hamilton, and we were what's called a sister station of a station in Brisbane called FM 104, which is now called Triple M. And so the manager of that Brisbane station was visiting us for a week just to make sure we were doing everything properly. And while he was there, his copywriter, who had been with the station since the beginning, quit. And he he just went, he just panicked. He just went, oh, no, we've lost the, have you got anyone here we can send over? And so the station manager just just grabbed a quarter-inch tape off the wall and played the first ad on it, which was awful. Do you remember what it was? I don't remember what it was, but it was me doing some dodgy voice. And I remember because, and I remember the guy saying, "Who did the voices?" And they said, "Oh, he does the voices as well." So because I could write the ads and do all the voices, that was what got me the job. Two for the price of one. Exactly. So how quickly were you on a plane? Well, how's this? I I remember that um, you, I didn't have a passport, and I had to move over in three weeks. And in those days, it took six months to get a passport in New Zealand. So I've gone home to this boarding house. To the, I was staying with. Uh, about three doors along from my mum's house, I was there wasn't room for me at home, so I was staying in this shed at the back of one of our neighbours. <laughs> this old woman called Mrs. Burrows, who was about eighty-five years old, and I'm sitting there at dinner that night, and I'm going, oh, "I've been offered this great job in New- in Australia, and I'm not going to be able to take it because uh, I haven't got a passport." And she got Mrs. Burrows goes. Oh, that's all right. My son works in the passport office in Taupo. He can get you one tomorrow. So in three days, I had a passport. And like, so if that guy hadn't been visiting, if I hadn't been working there, if I hadn't been staying with this woman whose son worked in the... I mean, if all those things hadn't happened, we, you would have to be sitting here talking to uh, Greg Fleet right now. <laughs> and, cra- and frankly, I can't guarantee that he would have turned up. <laughs> So you're at the airport. What what do you ex- I mean had you been to Australia before? Never been out of the country. Obviously you didn't choose where to go, but no, uh, how I, did you fit in? I well, the great thing that happened was my girlfriend agreed to come over with me. And we'd only been together, we'd met in a, in a amateur theater play and we'd only been together for about 6 weeks and I said So it had lasted longer than the show. <laughs> it's right. It had it, had, uh, it hadn't closed early, thankfully. And I <laughs> said to her, you know, do you want to move to Australia with me? And she was working at Lucas Bat and Tirapa, and she just went, yeah, why not? So we both moved to Brisbane. And um, I I didn't have – I have to say I didn't know a lot about Australia, and it was strange because Queensland under the Bielke-Peterson regime was not typical of the rest of Australia. So it was a very strange atmosphere to just be dropped into. I love Brisbane, I have to say. I really like living there, but – I remember seeing on my first week there, uh, I saw a guy in the square or whatever, the mall in the city, uh, middle of the city, being bundled into a paddy wagon because he was wearing a Joe Busters T-shirt, <laughs> like, you know, like Ghostbusters with Sir Joe on it. So it was very, yeah, it was it was a strange shift. Although it wasn't that much of a change because I'd, <laughs> I'd just come from New Zealand under Rob Muldoon. So they were both, you know, artists of the gerrymander. 
How how um, quickly did you you know establish yourself in the in the radio at the radio station? Not, well, what was interesting, and I've told this story a lot of times, but I just I had a very thick New Zealand accent. I sounded like uh, Murray on Flight of the Concords, and the manager just went, "Well, you're not going on here sounding like that." So I had to learn to do an Australian accent like in two weeks. And that's why I've got this very odd voice, which veers between New Zealand and sort of English. It's a very strange, unstable accent. And, and that's because of the people at, uh, at Triple M, now known as Triple M in Brisbane, telling yeah, you to speak Australian. That's right. And, and you know, because I was going to do voices in the ads and I also wanted to do a little five-minute comedy show. And that was what really got me established there was I was doing – well, I did a lot of voices in ads and I wrote the ads, And but then what I really liked doing was this five-minute comedy show that they used to play on the breakfast show, on uh, Bill Healy's breakfast show, on uh, Friday mornings. And that was what I, you know, I made a compilation of the best bits of that and sent that to the ABC and that's how I got down to Melbourne and eventually got into the degeneration group and at one stage you were thinking about um going back to new zealand yeah oh that's that's happened to, that happens every five years luke <laughs> <laughs> when things go badly i, I always I, I always say my career's like tarzan you know i'm there's no vine and i'm going oh, no, i'm have to move back to new zealand oh there's one and i grab onto something else and how close do you get to going uh quite a few times i remember i moved when i moved to mel well when I lost my job, well, I left my job actually in in, in Brisbane, uh, but they, I was sort of put in a terrible situation in that they they had promised me that I could do my comedy show full time, but then all the ads that I was doing started winning. This sounds very boastful, but it's true. They started winning all these awards. And so they said, oh, we'd rather you just kept writing ads and not do this. So they suppressed your creativity. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But then, um, so I just stormed out in a huff one day and then found myself out of work and down to pretty much $200 in the bank. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm now at the point where I don't even have enough money to go back to New Zealand. I think I might have become that horrible cliche, the Kiwi on the dole in Queensland for a couple of weeks. Were you still with a girlfriend at that still time? Still with a girl. I remember she luckily had a job uh, as an architect model maker so she was making tiny uh, buildings every night and that was what was paying our rent wow and so you never got to the airport or you never no. got to buying a ticket no but it was close and then i got yeah then finally the abc answered my, opened my because i'd i mean i think i've mentioned this a lot of times but i read about the degeneration in the tv week and it sounded hilarious, and it had a picture of someone doing a piss. T- it was Rob Sitch doing a parody of Mad Max, and like in the early eighties, I'm going, "Wow, that's I've never seen a parody of Mad Max. This sounds like my kind of thing." So I rode away to become a writer on the Degeneration. And five months later, they opened my envelope. By which time, the show had been made and gone to air. I mean, it's hard to imagine now. But people weren't writing in wanting to write comedy. Again, it wasn't considered a job. There weren't many. Oh, I tell you how I got their address. Um, the only Australian comedy show that was on um, TV at the time was uh, Australia. You're standing in it. Remember right. that? Yes. And it was being repeated. And I looked at the end credits, and there was the names were like Blackburn. No, there's a lot of Blackburns. Kenley Brooks Quantock. Rod Quantock. Right. I went, how many Quantocks can there be? Went, got the Melbourne phone book, found Rod Quantock in the phone book. This is back in the 80s when everyone was in the phone book. Mm. And I just called him up 
and he said, um, here's who you need to write to. Write to Chris Noble, who was uh, then the head of comedy at the ABC. And, yeah, he was the guy who eventually called me up and said, well, <laughs> we've made the series, but how would you like to write for the Gillies uh, show? Right, okay. And so, in a way, it was a blessing in disguise because yeah. you ended up coming back to the DGN anyway. Yeah, well, that was it because I got a job on the Gillies show as, as a researcher because my writing wasn't good enough. And then that finished and I got a job on Rubbery Figures. Remember that little yes. puppet show with uh, run by Peter Nicholson? And then that finished and then I was on the dole again and pretty much ready to come back to New Zealand. And then the phone rang. It was Tom Gleisner. And he goes, we're doing a second series of The Degeneration and Rob Sitch is going back to medical school for a couple of years. So he's going to be in the show, but he's not going to be able to write. We found your tape of sketches from Brisbane Radio. Wow. Um, how would you like to come on board as a writer? So that was how I, again, due to a crazy flukish... The lesson of my career is accidents. Accidents are what get you places. And did, did you did you just go, yep, I'm in? Or Absolutely. did you have to say, I just have to check with my girlfriend? Uh, no, she was quite happy for me to maybe earn some money for once. So, um, yeah, I got I went – I remember I went to a meeting at the Paragon Cafe in uh, Rastown Street and right. met – and there was Santo and Tom – and John Alsop, who eventually wrote Brides of Christ, who was the script editor, and Andrew Knight, who was kind mm. of the head writer. And, yeah, and at that meeting I came up with a sketch which I think really got me the job, and it was because um, a new thing in the mid-'80s was blooper shows. Remember those bloopers, bleeps and blunders? <laughs> and they'd show outtakes from that. was kind of a new thing. Right. And so I said, what if you had some terrorists sending – their hostage demands video, and then at the end of the video, they've included all the bloopers. So there's this <laughs> horrible, threatening uh, message from some terrorists, and then there's a jump cut, and the the head terrorist is just sitting in a in a seat on the plane, going, you know. When you make a film like this, sometimes things don't go to plan, <laughs> and then they show their bloopers, and that that was the that was the first. I remember Rob Sitch really liked that sketch, and then I got into the group and then wrote thirty absolutely shit house sketches. And I remember I surely must have come close to being sacked, but every now and then someone would go, yeah, but he did do hijack bloopers. That was a good sketch. So the first time, did, did you present that and say, here we go, here's hijack bloopers, and sat around listening to them laugh? Yeah, so- well, I remember at that meeting at the Paragon, they were just talking about things we could do, and you're always in comedy looking for new things to take the piss out of, and those blooper shows were new. So I just, what if you did this? And just everyone went, hmm, that might actually work. The new guy might have struck something. So that was really, you know, sometimes just one idea can can get you in the door. And when you sit down in that meeting, I mean, sometimes you can kind of um, smell or feel brilliance around you. It was, I had already met Tom because when I was working on Gillies, there was a show called, that no one remembers, called While You're Down There, a sketch comedy show. Um, with uh, Glenn Robbins, Richard Stubbs, Gina Riley, and Tom was the head writer on that. So I used to hang around on the set of that, and he would often come down to the to the. I remember him coming down and telling one of the comedians, not one of the ones I've named, by the way, but mm. one who isn't a household name. I remember he was just doing his stand-up bit because there was sketches with stand-up in between, and I just remember seeing Tom come down to the set and say to this guy in rehearsal. Yeah, you might not want to do that one on national TV because it is on one of Woody Allen's albums. 
This guy's just like trying to pass a bit of famous Woody wow. Allen gear off as his own. I remember going, and I remember just the way Tom told him that. Mm. Just I went, that is a funny man. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, Tom, and Tom was always my, when I joined that group, he was the one who sort of took me under his arm and, and really, I always say about 40% of what I know about writing comedy is directly from Tom Gleisner. Wow. And Tom has a really, even to this day, you can see it on, Paying attention, you can see it on things like Russell Coit or in those those books he writes, uh, uh, Warwick Todd. There's always a really fast joke count. Mm. It's like Tom can't go more than ten seconds. There has to be a joke, right? And I would always write a sketch, and he'd go, "It's too long before the first joke." Really? And, or you write a sketch, and you go, "I reckon you get four more jokes in there." And so to this day, I've always got the Tom Gleisner joke meter in my head. Wow, to this day. Yeah, absolutely. You can always crowbar in more jokes. Now, most people, I'm guessing, know you or you came to prominence um, to the Everyday Australian on yes. Martin Malloy. That was the big, that's the one thing I think I've done that's crossed over from the world of cult comedy to, you know, proper comedy, you know, show business, if you like. So what happened in between this this meeting that you had at the cafe in Rathdown Street <laughs> yes. and and being on national radio? What what, uh, what was the lead up to that? That meeting was in 86 and then Mark Malloy started in, in 80, uh, 95, yeah. Okay, so a good decade. But what happened was um, I got onto uh, the TV show as a writer and I was very much at the bottom of the ladder. I was kind of the junior guy. But then we got asked to do breakfast radio on what was then Eon FM, became Triple M. Mm. And um, uh, Rob wasn't going to be there. And the, I think Rob, Tom and Santa had been doing sketches for the triple uh, the Eon breakfast show. So they wanted them to come and do that full time. And Rob wasn't available, so they asked me to to go. So it was me, Tom, and Santo. And I had, of course, done three or four years of radio and could do all these voices mm. and loved working with sound effects. So suddenly I went from being a junior to not being senior but being kind of on an equal footing with Tom and Santo. Got it. And then we did that for five years. And then that team, the team that, that did that breakfast show, which was a slightly different version of the degeneration. The degeneration on TV had been had Magda Shabansky, Mark Downey, a guy called John Harrison. Uh, Tom was in it, but he was kind of really like the seventh member. And But the radio show, now it was me, Tom and Santo, and then eventually Rob came back and, of course, Jane Kennedy joined us. Mm. And then towards the end, Mick Malloy and Jason Stevens joined us. So that was the team that went on to do The Late Show. And we always used to say the two years we did The Late Show were really like year six and seven of our radio show because we just took a lot of the things we'd been doing on radio just straight onto TV. Right, okay. And then that was insanely popular, although not initially. It took mm. a while to catch on. And Mick and I, uh, well, the others, uh, Rob, Tom, Santo and Jane, formed Working Dog, went and did Frontline, and me and Mick just went, back to doing stand-up, which we had been doing before The Late Show and toured for a year and then uh, tried to get a TV show up of Martin Malloy and amazingly no one couldn't get it up. How do you pitch that? Well, it was... It was that was a very very strange year because we'd won the Logies in nineteen. We'd won both the comedy Logies uh, in nineteen ninety four, and then me and Mick could not get anyone to to do a show, and we we nearly got one up at Channel Nine, 
but they wa- we wanted to do something late at night and sort of piss farting around, kind of what we'd been doing on the late show. But they wanted us on in prime time, and we're going well. That's you can't muck around as much in right. prime time. It's got to be slicker. We're going to have to hire a lot of other writers, and uh, so then we pitched it to Triple M to, to Triple M as a radio show, mm. and they didn't want to do it, which was uh, amazing to us because we had, of course, been on their breakfast show quite successfully for for years. And that was the next time that I was just about to move back to New Zealand. And then I got... So, to, sorry, despite everything despite that you'd everything, done yeah, we, and achieved in the time that you'd been in Australia, you yeah, thought, I'm bailing. Yeah. You, we just... Could, well, because all we wanted to do was more of me and Mick, because me and Mick had been a sort of team within the late show, and we felt that was, you know, ripe with potential. And but then a guy called Brad March, uh, who who was uh, the I guess the what do they call them now? Group content director. I think it was just group program director in those days. Uh, he got wind of it and he said, "How would you like to be on Fox FM uh, or Today FM in Sydney?" And so that was Mark Malloy was. And people to this day think Mark Malloy was on Triple M. It was actually on Fox and Today. It was on, you know, in between uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart and Ace of Base. <laughs> People think we were sort of coming on between ACDC, but no, it was it was actually on what used to be referred to as the Chick Music Station. <laughs> that was. I remember our, a week before we went to air. Um, I, see, I can't remember the chronology of this because now they're owned by the same company. Mm, it's on stereo. Sister stations, yeah. Yeah, sister stations. But I'm, I'm not sure if they were in those days. But I remember being in a, in a meeting where the general manager just got everyone into a room and said, okay, from next Monday, Triple M, bloke music, Fox FM, chick music. Get used to it. <laughs> that was the meeting. And me and Mickey going, hang on, are we on? Which one are we on? We're on the chick music. And, and so we were. it was quite an odd um, call, really, for us to be on Fox. How do you back announce? <laughs> well, just taking the piss, constantly taking the piss, because we've that was became our thing, was taking the piss out of the music we were playing, which, you know, a lot of people on the network didn't like. But I always figure if you're taking the piss out of the music, it's a win-win because people... You're mentioning it. Well, exactly, because people who, who like the music have just heard the music, so they've been satisfied, and then the people who hate Nickelback are getting a joke about how terrible they are. So everyone's a winner, aren't they? That's always my... But that's, you know, often being my downfall in radio is not being reverential of the music we're playing enough. Now, how many years did that last? Uh, Mark Malloy went for four years, 95 to 98, four years. How often were you there? It was... I don't think it was... I think we did... We did at least 40, I think we did 44 weeks a year, but it was a full-on show. Like, I mean, when we quit, I remember we foolishly put out a press release that said, we're knackered. <laughs> and, you know, people were saying, well, it's only a two. I mean, it was quite a, uh, in those days, it was quite considered a bit dodgy to be doing a two-hour show. Cause you we usually had, do three? People do three, and, and the old breakfast show when we started was four. But we just had this rather... I guess pompous attitude. We were like, we want this to be like a TV show. We we had this phrase where it's not a shift, it's a show. You know, a shift is where people just tune in and out. They might hear 20 minutes of the breakfast show in the morning. We go, we want people to listen to the whole thing like it's a TV show. So we want to write a lot of sketches and we want to have a lot of production and, you know, make it really quality. Uh, not saying that was 
the achieved, but mm. that was the goal. <laughs> so we would be in there at ten o'clock in the morning, and then I would usually finish at midnight that night. So it was like a really full on job. But what course, were you doing till midnight? Just a lot of it was because there was no internet, so you would have to just go read every newspaper and get you know show business magazines from overseas, and a lot of it was going through. Uh, the news that night and finding lines you could lift out and play around with or getting an interview with, you know, uh, John Howard and changing the questions. And there was a lot of production elements, a lot of elaborate songs and sketches and, you know, pissing around with tapes. And, yeah, it was a lot of – it was production heavy. And in that first year, were you were you just local? Were you – No, it was or, or national. Or was it syndicated from day one? Yeah, it was, it was, it was on uh, – in capital cities from day one and then – Within a few months, we were on sixty stations around the country. How do you how do you get your head around that? Well, we actually never did because we were just because it was so production heavy. We were just you know head down in the luge like every day. You, we ne- we had this little uh, there wasn't room for us at the station, so they craned a construction worker's hut onto the roof of the building on St Kilda Road. No we way. were just in there all day writing comedy. And I in the four, you know, and they were always saying, "Oh, come and do a show from Brisbane. Why don't you do an OB?" And we were going, "We we have to be where the sound effects are. We have to be where <laughs> Vicky Maher, who produced our sketches, are. We have to be, you know, at the home base making things." So in the four years we did that show, we only did two shows outside of the studios in St Kilda Road, and both of them were at Today in Sydney because we had to be on the Arias that night. Right. we did these albums that were, you know, won Aria Awards somehow. <laughs> there were three albums? There were three albums and they, they all won the Aria. And I remember one of them was called Poop Shoot, largely so that if we won an Aria, someone would have to say Poop Shoot on the Aria Awards. And, and who actually said that, do you remember? I can't remember. I don't know. It was probably Kate Sobrano <laughs> or someone. <laughs> That four years, again, would have been ridiculously exhausting it when you're was, doing those yeah. kind of hours. I mean, were you in some ways relieved uh, when it was all over? Yeah. I, the last year we started, because Mick and I were both a couple of prickly pears, really, and and we never had any arguments, amazingly, until the last year we started to get a bit sort of short with each other. And I think by the year, I remember towards the end of the first year, I remember Mick just snapping one day at the office and going, why are we working so hard? You know, we've we've got to the top of the mountain. The problem is that you just have to – every year it has to be better than the year before. Otherwise, people say, oh, they're losing it. So it got more and more elaborate and it just got to the point where you just couldn't keep doing it at that level. And when your boss is there and you're trying to do a deal for your – you know, negotiating your salary – how do those negotiations I, go down? I never had anything to do with that. That was um, Mick's department. Mick and um, we never had it. We've never, I've, to this day, I've never had an agent or a manager. We had a, uh, our friend Greg Sitch, who's a great entertainment lawyer, and he would, uh, him and Mick would go in and do the negotiating, and I'm just terrible at that. <laughs> I would go, look, I'll put in extra hours in the sound effects department if you handle all the paperwork. And so would he come out of that meeting and just go, Hey, Tone, this is how much we're, we're <laughs> yes, on next year. Is absolutely. That, and you go, okay, sounds good. Mick is way better at that kind of stuff than me. I just f- f- start feeling like throwing up if I have to Because negotiate. he's banging his fist. <laughs> he's very good at doing a fist bang if, if necessary. So after Martin Malloy finished and you did your final show, what did you do other than sleep for a little while? Uh, well, I really wanted to get into writing longer-form comedy because I just went and, – and all the time we'd been doing Martin Malloy, I'd been trying to write 
movies. That was something I wanted to do. And the first thing I did was I bumped into Colin Lane in the street and I was a huge fan of the adventures of Lane and Woodley. And he said, uh, we're going to be doing a third and fourth series back to back. And uh, Frank and I are going to write the third series, but we want other people. For the first time, we want other people to write series four. Obviously, Colin Frank would then rewrite everything. But um, so I said, uh, can I, you know, they, they said, would you like to write one? And I said, look, I don't know if I can. So I'll just write one on spec, which is where you don't get contracted. You just write it, and then if they like it, they might buy it. So mm. I spent, I think, two or three months just writing. I wrote two episodes of, of Lane and Woodley, and then uh, the series got axed and was never made. So all these episodes of um, – all these scripts of Lane and Woodley were written, and no one has ever seen them. Wow. Yeah. D- does that frustrate you? Does it, that infuriate it was, you? It was infuriating because I thought – I mean, I just love that show. And I think it's still – someone told me it's still – it might be the highest-selling DVD the ABC has ever done because it just never goes out of fashion. You know, really? people – I remember Wayne Hope and Robin Butler, who I work, both of us worked with for many years, saying to me, it's the only show we can watch with our kids that – where we don't feel like it's safe, you know, daggy parents because it's great for kids, but it's also full of quite, you know, Frank gets his dick caught in a drawer in the first episode. <laughs> you know, it's more adult than you remember, and um, yeah, so I, I was very frustrated because I thought that was a great show, and the guy who axed it was a fucking idiot, if I can use those terms on your new podcast, <laughs> but he was, and um, he wanted. I remember the, the, I said, "Why is he axed it?" And they went, "Oh, it's not topical enough." Okay, hang on, we don't want to see Colin and Frank doing jokes about the GST. <laughs> and he went and made a show called Backburner instead, which is right. more topical humour. Mm. Now, tell me then, uh, you've made some appearances in the early 2000s. Uh, thank God you're here, the panel, the Mick Malloy show, Kathleen Kim, Welcher yes. and Welcher. Those are, every show you've mentioned is has been made by friends of mine. And right. that's how I, all of those, if, if you look at my list of guest appearances, they're always just friends of mine. So you're not actually saying, oh, I've got to, I've got to be Magda's boyfriend. No. <laughs> you, you you are just going, uh, someone says to you, hey, Tone, I've got this part for yeah. you. And you go, yep, sounds good. Yeah, that's, is, is that's it. it. That, that's how your career has almost been. It just blunders along and there's always just enough friends of mine making things for me to get enough work for me to pay for the things I want to do, like writing books or doing this thing I do called Sizzletown, which you basically do for free. So that's that's my career is just – getting just enough paid work to do what I want to do, which is foolishly unpaid. (laughs) And which brings us to a point that uh, it seems to be that a lot of the things that you do, especially now, you are doing pretty much an unpaid job on Sizzletown. Yeah, yeah, well, that's – well, Sizzletown is – was meant to be a simple idea. It was – I wanted to do something with Matt Dower, who I've worked with for years, who did all the sketches on uh, Get This, and we did Child Proof last year, and I thought, well, what if I do – and also wanted to do all my character voices because I haven't had um, a chance to do them since Get This, which was 12 years ago, and I don't – I don't get any acting work, possibly because I don't have an agent. It's probably my own <laughs> fault. But I just wanted to do all my character voices and work with Matt. So I thought, well, what if it was a fake talkback show? 
and I'll play the host and the callers. And also I wanted to do some impro because I love impro. So all of the characters on Sizzletown are improvised and we record a lot more than the final product and then we edit it all down. I thought that'll be a simple idea. That'll be just a couple of hours with me and Matt every week. And, of course, by episode three we're elevating the studio up onto the (laughs) roof and there's tanks full of dolphins and we're being swarmed by bees and we're doing songs and suddenly it's like a massive production effort for a, a half, it only comes out every two weeks it's half an hour but each episode we don't record it in one chunk we do it all over the place so I reckon each episode is three to four days work for free but the problem is you once you start it's the same thing that happened with Mark Malloy same thing that happened with Get This once you start going down that path of getting more elaborate where do you stop and you don't want to wind it back because you want it to get better you know, we're, Matt and I are addicted to what you can do with audio and sound effects and what we call theatre of the mind. And so it's, I, I guess the phrase is making a rob for your own backs because, yeah, as we sit here now, um, we have just spent about three weeks on a song for the end of the final episode that goes three minutes 45. I mean, that's insane. Oh, but, it is. But it's so satisfying. We're in a studio now. Thank you very much to Matt Gerberkorn yes. at Sonic Playground. Thanks, Matt. Um, and you walked in the door um, and, and <laughs> said, wow, this is really professional. <laughs> that's right. Now, you, you do obviously all the voices except for Matt Dower's voice. Yeah. He does his own voice. He you don't do that on, yet. on playing himself. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your studio setup at home. Well, I don't have enough room for a permanent studio, so I designed a fold-away uh, podcast booth <laughs> because, you know, most podcasts, so many podcasts sound like people have just recorded them in a stairwell. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just designed this. If you can imagine me sitting in like a shower cubicle <laughs> that's made of foam rubber, that's that's where I record sizzle. T- well, that's the host bits. The call, I start by recording the calls, which are just me in different rooms of the house, just talking bullshit into a Zoom recorder and imagining that I'm being interrupted by me. Yes, of and, course. And then I have to sit down and go through it all and, and go, okay, that bit works, That lose that bit and take quite extensive notes. Then I have to write a script for me, for the me character. Yes. Then I go into the booth and, like, that script will literally sound like this. This is what it'll sound like. Uh-huh. Really, but but what? Yeah, I I get what you're saying, but if I can, ju- <laughs> it's like that. It'll be like five minutes of that, and then we go to Matt's place and we just you know load it all into the computer and edit it all together, and it takes way too long. Sizzletown has become, can I use the words, ridiculously popular. It's pretty popular, yeah. It's, what, did, it's, were you expecting any? No. Well, I knew the Get This fans, or not all of them, but I knew some of them would be into it. And we I, I have to say we got a big boost from it being mentioned on uh, Have You Been Paying Attention? Right. And also Wendy Harmer on um, ABC Radio in Sydney did a big thing on it. So as soon as those went to it, I mean, you know, I remember the morning after I was on Have You Been Paying Attention, we were suddenly at number one on iTunes. So wow. that certainly helped. And I mean, what kind of numbers are that? How, how do they gauge how popular um, you are? Well, it's, I, I think we're up, as we sit here now, I think we're on about 315,000 downloads. So, and that's downloads. Then you've got, because I don't download every podcast I listen to. I just listen to a lot of them, you know, in mm. the in the thing on the computer. <laughs> and so, you know, probably more people are hearing it 
than those figures suggest. I don't know, but it's going by the number of people who yell, what's it going to be at me from <laughs> passing cars, I know that a lot of people are hearing it. Speaking of yelling things from passing cars, how, um, how do you respond to being called a celebrity? Oh, well, it doesn't really happen. It sort of happens with quote marks around it because I'm not really – I've always been just below that level of – briefly when we were doing Mark Malloy and The Late Show, I remember when I was on tour with Mick Malloy, we once got – we once had to have the police come and escort us out of the theatre in Hobart because there were so many screaming girls. For Mick Malloy, I should point out. (laughs) And I remember the guy at the theatre going, well, I haven't seen this since Grant Dodwell was here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, which, you know, brings you down to earth. But And then Mark Malloy was quite huge. But like I say, we never left the house when we were doing Mark Malloy. We were too busy. And now I'm at the level where it's – I probably get recognised once a week. I mean, I can uh, – it really is in context when um, – I've occasionally I'll be out with someone like Glenn Robbins, and mm. he cannot go anywhere. Glenn cannot go to the shops without people wanting him to do the Kell walk or you know, do, <laughs> say something as Russell Coit. I've never quite been in that level. People usually confuse me with Andrew Denton mm. or sometimes James Valentine, or you know. So I'm not. So you know, you're I'm, a little under the radar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And often I'll take my glasses off, and that gives me about four extra seconds. You know, <laughs> if I feel like I'm approaching. Uh, if I can tell there's nerds in the area, I'll take my glasses off and I'll get – it'll just give me enough of a of a, a lead. You'll just hear – I'll just be going around the corner and I'll hear, was that – was that – was that Dent? No. Was that – I think it might have been Tony Ma- – he didn't have glasses. By that time, I'm in the car. <laughs> so it just gives me a bit of a lead. But, I mean, I mean even that's an exaggeration. I, I generally can go six weeks without anyone knowing who I am. Now, social media. Um, yes, I first of all, you don't have a mobile phone, so no. I, I can get you easily by email or on <laughs> yeah. your home landline or skywriting. <laughs> I um, it's one of those things that uh, you have been a big fan of Twitter uh, yeah. for a long, long time. I, I love it, and uh, that's uh, your your sole kind of form of of social media. Yeah, we up have, until about twelve months ago, maybe. Uh, well, Matt Dower has set up both Facebook and Instagram for for Sizzletown, and I send him pictures to put on that, but he generally does that himself. Twitter so he's is, the social media manager for, for yeah, Sizzletown, that's isn't he? right. But um, Twitter is a huge amount of work, I find. But I love it. It's just a great way of – I mean, I used to be one of those people who would bombard all my friends with an email saying, "You look at this clip on YouTube, and now I just put it on Twitter. And so that's great, and it's good for – you know, uh, nerdish pursuits. Like I'm a big fan of Blu-rays, so I'm always on there talking about Blu-rays and which version of the film you should buy. And it's also great for at my level of uh, of. Uh, the, I mean, I am not Dave Hughes. I'm not playing two thousand people. Uh, I would if I go to Brisbane, I'll play a theatre to like one hundred and twenty, or maybe if I'm lucky, one hundred and eighty. Do you prefer those rather than that's the big really crowds? that's kind of the level of my audience at this stage. So um, I can't afford to take out a giant poster or something. So I generally just uh, promote my gigs on Twitter, and that pretty much, I mean, I've done. Every second year, I tend to do a show at the Fringe, and I don't do, I never do, I usually don't do posters or flyers or any. When we did Childproof, 
the only promotion we did was on Twitter. So wow. it's, I find it really valuable from that point of view. Now we're talking about childproof. Run me through, obviously that took a while to develop. Yes. And with Serena, your lovely girlfriend. Yes. How and far, a fine writer and editor. Absolutely. How far back do we go when you first thought of the idea until you actually uh, ended up pitching it? It didn't become a TV show, but then you went, let's do it as a podcast. What was that kind of journey? Uh, Three, four years? Yeah, maybe longer because we had always, uh, we don't have children and we don't want to have children and we have a lot of friends who are in the same boat. Well, you've always said to me that your your children um, or what you would be spending on children has been spent on your Blu-ray collection. Or just uh, buying me time to to write a book or mm, something, for mm. example. Correct. Yeah, but isn't that sad? My, I don't. I like to say that I don't have any children, but I, ha- I do have a large number of DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I lost custody to a lot of them in my divorce. But um, <laughs> no. So what happened was we just went. You know, we noticed there's never been a sitcom about people who don't have children. And uh, or people who willfully don't have uh, child-free by choice, and yep. yet it's a massive group of people, an increasingly large group of people. And if you type in hashtag child-free by choice into Twitter, it's a very contentious subject. And I remember um, there's a great uh, comedian from America called Jen Kirkman, and she's written a book on this subject called uh, I Can Barely Take Care of Myself. And it's a New York Times bestseller. And I saw her on Twitter once and someone said, you know, why has there never been a movie of this or a TV show? This is exactly my life. And she goes, I have tried to get this up with every studio and network in North America and no one will touch the subject. It's like because the religious middle America, the idea of not having children is the terrorists of one. You know what I mean? It's a very contentious subject talking about not having children. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, that's America. They're much more religious. It would never be like that in Australia. So we, we went ahead and wrote this sitcom, took us a year, to write it, and then we pitched it everywhere, and yeah, no one would t- even Presto turned it down. Remember Presto? <laughs> I do. And we just had a lot of people say, um, "It's funny. We think it's funny, but it's too niche." We're going. You, do you realise how big this niche is? You know, every week there's another sitcom about the joys of all the oh, it's so nappies have to be changed. You know, there's another sitcom like The Letdown, or or there's one I see. Um, you know, the guy from uh, Martin Freeman from The Office is doing a new show about the what it's like have being a parent. Really, <laughs> has there not been any shows on that subject? <laughs> Has there been one about being child-free by choice? No, there hasn't. And, um, yeah, we just couldn't get anyone to to do it. So we went, well, let's do it as an old-style radio show. Let's do – because we've written the six half hours. Let's do them at the fringe. Like, we'll get all of the people we wanted to be in the TV show, Lockie Hume, Ros Hammond, Andrew McClellan, people like that, and we'll stand around the mics. And we got Geraldine Quinn because we had never written – We'd never actually worked out who would play that role. And, um, yeah, we did the show, did the six episodes over three nights. So there was no take twos of any lines. You know, there was very little rehearsal. Mm. And the idea was we'll just add a few rudimentary sound effects and make it almost sound like we had a sound effects man on the night, you know, opening doors and making... All done in post-production. That's right. And then do it in post because if you do it on the night, you're... and then you want to change something that's locked in there. You can't change the timing. Like if you put music under a scene, well, you can't edit that scene because yes. it's now, you know, you're stuck with that timing. So once Matt and I got into post, we went, well, hang on. We can 
we can actually do a full 24-track production and make it sound like like it was done as a TV show and you're just hearing the soundtrack of it. And we went, is that going to be strange to be in a car or, you know, in an Anzac Day parade and hear the audience laughing? And just by saying at the beginning, live from the Bella Union, it, it got people adjusted to the idea that this is a this is not canned laughs, this is a real audience reaction. Right. Then we just went nuts on the production. So if you listen to Childproof in the headphones, it, it really does sound... You know, there's some incredibly elaborate. Um, you know, there's even foley. You know, with people mm. moving in their chairs. You can hear whenever Sturjo is <laughs> moving in his leather chair. You can hear chair squeaks. And so, yeah, we just put it out as a, a podcast, and it, people went nuts for it, and it ended up winning an award. So, and and remind me which which award was that? The Australian Podcast Award, very prestigious. How long have they been in existence for? <laughs> Two years. Oh, wow, <laughs> that's right. But again, uh, hundreds of thousands of downloads. Yeah, it went did that great. surprise you? It really did because I thought maybe it is a niche. You know, I started to believe maybe these people, surely they can't all be wrong. Maybe it is terrible. But uh, no. And and also, I have to say, we didn't do what you would normally do, which is turn it into a radio play. We decided to leave in all of the visual jokes and have a narrator. We yes. got Jay Mueller, who's a mm. beautiful voice. We got him to narrate it and describe a lot of the visual stuff. Yeah. And because we wanted people to while they're listening to it, picture what the TV show would have looked like. And I think the first episode is very heavy on the narration in the first 10 minutes. So I know a lot of people don't get through the first 10 minutes. Really? Some people put it on and they go, too much narration. And because we wanted to start the show visually, because it's a TV show, we mm. just wanted, we just thought, we just had a great image. You know, everyone does that thing when you don't have kids and you're stuck behind a car and it's got baby on board. <laughs> people always make jokes. Yep. You know, there's a million jokes. And we thought, let's not do those jokes. Let's just have our couple stuck in a car behind a baby on board sticker and have them look at the sticker and look at each other and have people know what they're thinking. And then the next car has got one of those, you know, the cartoon stick figure yes. family. And I think I say something like, if one of them dies, do they have to cross off? <laughs> you know, that's the first joke. So, uh, yeah, so we started it very visually. So there's a lot of narration in the first 10 minutes so you have to get over that hump so because of that I did think that a lot of people would put it on and not get very far but you know once you get to the end of episode two I think you know where it's going and uh, I mean do, do you see that that kind of a podcast as being you know the new version of like the old style BBC radio plays I I would um I would recommend if people uh, have got a script in the bottom drawer that they haven't been able to get up because you have to accept you're not going to make any money. I remember thinking, well, hang on, I, you know, it took us 10 – I was working on the scripts of that show for 10 months full-time, turning down directing jobs, and I remember thinking, hang on, if I add up all the jobs I turned down and then add to that the fact that we weren't able to sell it, and then, of course, when we did the live show, we gave the money to the performers. I think I ended up, you know, like maybe two grand out of pocket. But if I add up all the things I turned down, this may well have been the most expensive podcast <laughs> in history. So take, but I would say to anyone who's got a script that they haven't been able to get up and you definitely don't want to, you know, try again to get it up, 
and you think it can get laughs in front of an audience, do that. Do what we did. Put it on at the fringe. And the great thing about the fringe is they're up for experimentation and then record it properly. We were very lucky to have Matt Dower, who's big on miking the audience. Good. There's a lot of podcasts. It always, to me, sounds like the audience are three rooms away. Then you obviously have to spend a lot of time yeah, you don't have to do it as elaborate as we did, mm. but it is very satisfying to do that. Now, jumping backwards again, get this. Um, that lasted for about 20 months. <laughs> um, <laughs> Two years. Tell me uh, what worked and what didn't work and why was it pulled? Uh, oh, that's, that's a big bunch of questions. Uh, well, what we wanted to do, it, it was the station's idea uh, for us to do a show in the middle of the day. And they, was that highly unusual? It was. I think it was because a man called Peter Harvey, not Peter Harvey Canberra, the other Peter Harvey with an IE who uh, was the chairman of Stereo and had been a huge supporter of Martin Malloy. He, Mick Malloy had a show on Triple M called Tough Love, very yes. good show, and I think he just felt, and I filled in, that's right, for, for Mick a couple of weeks on that, and Peter just went, oh, we should give Tony a show. And they didn't really have room for it. They already had a breakfast show. They already had Drive. So they had the idea initially of us coming on after breakfast, like from 9 till 10. Then they moved us to a two-hour show from 11 to 1, which is a very strange time slot. And then we ended up being 2 till 4. So we had three different time slots in two years. And my idea was – the idea was to do – to still have as many jokes and sketches and bits as we'd had on Martin Malloy, but to have the whole – sort of um, presentation of it be looser, be more improvised. And I'd met Ed Cavalli uh, on Boytown and he just struck me as someone not only really f- a great guy and really funny, but also had a lot of impro uh, background. He'd, uh, I think, been the host of theatre sports in Sydney. Mm. So he became my sort of sidekick. And then the idea was we would have a different co-host every day. So that would give each episode a different flavour. And then we would have someone panelling. And originally it was a guy called The Bear who was great. But then we found Richard Marsland. And he was, of course, a very funny man, but also very good at panelling a show. And within about two months, uh, it had really become a four-person show. It was me, Ed, Richard, and then a fourth person the co-host, and that might be Angus Sampson, it might be George McEncrow, or it might be Richard E. Grant, if it was someone coming through town who we were a fan of, rather than just come on and, you know, plug your film, why not come on and do our whole show with us? So that was that was the idea. What worked? What, what didn't work? I don't know what didn't work, because what we were very careful about, as with Mark Malloy, is not having on guests who we didn't like or who we had to pretend to know about. You know, we didn't want to do any what I call Wikipedia interviews where you just quickly check the person's Wikipedia page the night before. Yeah. So if you listen to the guests, they were always people who we either knew or liked or were fans of. Right. You know, we'd have big names like Seth Rogen or Mm. or someone if we were a fan of that person. We had some very odd guests for Triple M, people like John Cooper Clark and Robin Hitchcock people, and that's possibly one of the reasons it got axed. But eventually it got – there's a number of reasons why it got axed, but the reason we were told, and I don't know whether this is the real reason, but uh, it could have been just because I was not playing enough music – yeah. Uh, but the reason we were told was that we were bringing in an audience, but it's not the audience we want. 
because it was the ratings were huge. It was in Sydney on Triple M. Triple M was ninth in the ratings at that time. Mm. And when Get This came on, it went up to third. Wow. But what was happening was this wasn't the normal Triple M audience. These right. were, so what was happening was our show would come on and three quarters of the Triple M audience who just wanted to hear music in the middle of the day would piss off. Right. But then a much larger amount of new people would arrive who hated Triple M and just listened to get this and then they would piss off at the end. Now no one's listening. So I remember them saying we would rather have less people who listen all day from breakfast to drive right. than more people who just listen to your two hours. So your format, in a way, upset the apple cart. It was literally a case of being too successful for our own good. Wow. So, yeah, it was and – it's, it, and it's a tricky thing because when you get acts like that, people must think, well, there must be more to the story. Like, if it's that successful, mm. why did they get – he must be impossible to work with. <laughs> and I'm not that impossible to work with. Now, speaking of working with you, that's that's uh, we will mention up a middle bogan now. I worked on series one and two. So did I. That. And um, what what were your roles? It was writer, director for some of the episodes. Yeah. I, H- how did that all come about? Well, I've known Wayne and Robin for years, and they were uh, fans of a film I made called Bad Eggs, and they had been wanting me to direct something for them for a while and they actually asked me to direct the first series of Little uh, Very Small Business mm-hmm. uh, or direct half of it. It was going to be me and Dana Reed, and I couldn't do that. And I then wrote a pilot for them for a show that didn't get up and then they did the last series of Librarians and Wayne Hope's character, Wayne had directed all of Librarians up mm. till that point, but Wayne's character was going to be in a lot more episodes in the last series. So he said, I want you to direct two episodes, including the final episode, which is a big deal, (laughs) and then also direct all of the scenes in the other episodes when I'm on screen. Right. So that had been great, and Mm. I really enjoyed that. And then they, when they got up uh, up a middle bogan up, they said, do you want to write some episodes? So I, I think I wrote three and directed six, yeah. How do you uh, approach the role as a director? Well, it's it's tricky because on Librarians, it's series three, and so all of the characters are kind of set in stone. Established, so yes. So you can't really change anything. But the most fun I had on on librarians was working with new characters. So working with Angus Sampson had this great villainous character in the last series and there was, um, oh, who else? Peter Brady, a lot of people. I really got to work a lot with the actors who were in smaller roles. Mm. But with the the with Roz and, and Heidi and, uh, you know, the regular cast and Robin, obviously, you know, they knew what they were doing. There was mm. very little actual directing of performance. Um, so that, and, but then they let me do the last episode and the last episode, I don't know if you would remember the last episode of Librarians, it was totally different from every previous episode. Mm. It had, uh, it had a big, everything was, uh, everyone had a triumphant ending because it was always very downbeat on Librarians, you know, it always ended very sadly. And in the last episode, they just decided to give everyone a happy ending, and it ended with this huge musical number at a at a wedding at um, at uh, Kai's wedding, and uh, you know Wayne Hope was doing his uh, Midnight Oil cover band. That's right. So you know that was uh, a lot of fun. So that episode ended up looking quite different from all previous episodes, not because of me, but mm. because of the way it had been written. And But with Upper Middle Bogan, we were starting from scratch. So that was different because I was there right at the beginning. And my big thing as a writer was 
to try and make Margaret, Robert, Robin Nevin's character, funnier. I had very much in my head the um, the mum from Arrested Development. Right, okay. He's always got a clinking drink <laughs> and a sort of scathing one-liner, and we didn't quite do that with Margaret. Career-wise, do you have a favourite um, type of role? Do you kind of go, I'm always a stand-up, that's where I started, or do you just enjoy the variety and the diversity of the different roles that you do within the industry. Yeah, it, it's it's not pl- very planned. I just sort of blunder along from one thing to the next. And I just, I like I said earlier, if, again with directing, like if I just stuck with directing, I know I could get so much better at it. But the problem is I do like doing stand-up and I do like writing books and I do like doing radio and I do like doing a bit of acting. And you just, you, I, you know, uh, at the moment, if I do get offered the chance to do radio shows quite a lot, and I go, yeah, well, if I do that, I'll never write another book. I'll never go back to stand-up because it'll just take over my life, or at least the kind of radio I do. I look at someone like Sam Pang, who's a friend of mine, and he does that Nova Breakfast show every morning. He's on Have You Been Paying Attention? He's on the front bar. He's also on the quiet, a, a pretty good stand-up comedian. <laughs> I could not do all those, all those things, things at once. Same with McAuliffe. I look, I just have no, you know, an, a new McAuliffe book just arrived in my letterbox. I go, when the fuck did he write this? <laughs> I have no idea how these people do those many things at once. Uh, I tend to, you know, try and concentrate on one thing at a time. And speaking of Sam Pang, you obviously, you're, you're doing that, the the weekly guest um, yes, on no, yeah. Well, that's I'm yeah. It's been three years now. It's great. And is is that kind of good that you can glide in, glide out, yeah. and not worry about everything that goes along with no. uh, what would be a full time radio gig? Don't have to go to any meetings. That's the <laughs> best part. I just come in, make a lot of baffling references to the nineteen eighties, and piss off. It's great, and it's sort of one day a week work, and that sort of finances things like you know, like Sizzletown. Now. Side projects and, and really outside the industry, you um, have a walking project. What yes. What is your walking project? And, oh, and as part of that walking project, I'd like you to tell me about your feet <laughs> and your footwear. <laughs> well, it's not that interesting. But, uh, yeah, I do have mad feet. Uh, they're sort of collapsed in at, to different levels. So I have really mad orthotics in my shoes. And I would recommend anyone who has a lot of back trouble to go and get their feet checked out because I was um, I was financing the holiday homes of a number of chiropractors <laughs> for about 15 years till finally a physiotherapist said, look at your feet, they're mental. <laughs> and so I went to a, what do you call it, podiatrist mm. and he – uh, he made, he's, a, he's like an artisan, he sculpts in his basement these uh, orthotics. What he did was he, yeah, he, he they make you walk, you know, in computerised shoes or something to work out what's wrong. And then he sculpts these orthotics and I remember him calling me up going, these are the most extreme that I've yet done. <laughs> you are only going to be able to wear them for five minutes a day for the first week. How do you respond to that? I go, yeah, I just kept thinking of the Steve Martin routine, the cruel shoes. (laughs) I'm going, okay, I'm going to have the cruel shoes on now. And so, yeah, you do. You wear them for five, then ten, and then an hour, and then eventually your body adjusts. It's like re-stumping a house because if your feet are out of whack, your hips are out of whack, your neck is out of whack, your jaw is out of whack, you get uh, headaches, you're getting uh, back trouble, you're hitting the table during a podcast, (laughs) which they won't be able to edit out because I was waffling on over it. And then so, 
you know, it just totally transformed my life. And then I decided what I need to do is start walking, do more walking. Mm. And we, me and the girlfriend, 10 years, pretty much 10 years ago from uh, right now, um, decided to just start walking 40 minutes a day, just round the block. And then we got sick of the local neighborhood. And we went, <laughs> you know, let's go to Turak. You know, Turak, you're a location manager. How mad is it? Those mansions. Crazy. It's fascinating. A lot of streets don't have footpaths. So many times we'd be walking, we'd see a curtain and then a federal police car would drive past. And we we walked all of Turak. That took three months, every, both sides of every street. And then we went, let's just do every street in Melbourne. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And explain to me and, and make it uh, sound simplistic <laughs> yeah. to those outside Melbourne, how far have you gone? What, what's, well, what's your kind of west, east, Not as south, far as, as people would think because there's a lot more of Melbourne. Like Greg Fleet's always pointing at little streets and going, you haven't done that one. <laughs> I go, we have done every street. <laughs> like, I have been known to look at Google Maps after we've got home and see that we missed one street and then we drive back the next oh, day wow. and just do that one street. We started, uh, once we'd done Turat, we started at, uh, under the Westgate Bridge down mm. in Port Melbourne, like yep. Todd Road around there. And we're expanding on f- in five directions at once. So we're at Essendon, we're at Pascoe Vale, we're at Box Hill, we're at Chadston, and we're at Bow Morris, just working outwards. And uh, as, as Dave Graney says to me, when are you going to get out of latte country? <laughs> when are you going to do Thomastown? Again, Dave, Thomastown's in the Million Dollar Club. This we'll never get... Out of latte country. And crazily enough, you have a competitor. It's, well, I, I don't think he knew he was a competitor, but one day I woke up and I had 200 tweets and I went, who's dead? And I had a look and, yeah, there's a guy, his name is Robert Olifiers, and he was on Channel 9 News and he was in the Herald Sun and he's three and a half, or at that stage he was three and a half years into walking every street in Melbourne, but he's only walking... He walks down the middle. He doesn't do both sides. So just for my – but he's doing like – we're only doing an hour a day. He's doing like I think five or six hours a day. So he's possibly even overtaken us by now. But just for my own amusement, I decided to start a rivalry with him on the radio. And so I started, you know, going, we're going to have to have a walk-off. See you at the qualifiers, Olifiers. That became (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> my catchphrase, and then eventually he contacted me, and he's a lovely man. And but we have we maintain this kind of, you know, faux rivalry on the radio. It's just good shtick on the radio. Yeah. Now our time is almost up. You talk for a living. I'm, apparently, I waffle on for quite some time. Now, is it is it weird talking about yourself oh, yeah. and, and your career? Like, uh, absolutely. When we've talked today uh, about different things, I, I mean, does that bring back your childhood? Does- oh, it sure does. You don't because I never. I'm not someone who drives around thinking about my career and what it's done. I'm always just trying to think what. What can Dion say this week? You know, I'm just trying to think of stupid things and I'm not really reflective and occasionally someone will put up an old clip on YouTube and I'll I'll literally have no memory of saying that or... So yeah, and and I'm sort of quite old. I'm, you know, I'm turning 55 next year. I mean... You get to the point where it's like someone else has done certain things. You look back at... 
you know, things on the even things on Martin Malloy. People will send me tweets, and I have no idea what they're talking about. But do you, do you feel proud of the career that you've had? I mean, you, you look at um, how many carcasses there are on the side <laughs> of the road. Oh yeah, in this business, would you say you've been fortunate, lucky, Ten, uh, talented? Of- what, what, how do you how do you put it that you are still surviving? Fortunate and lucky, definitely. Um, in terms of talent, uh, part of it is doing lots of things. I mean, I'm not someone who you know tells young people what to do in comedy, but the one bit of advice I do say to people is do as many things as you can because there's very few people who can just do one thing. You look at some. I look at someone like Will Anderson, who's really only does stand up, and he's absolutely mastered it. And I'm quite jealous when I look at someone like that. But I go, I couldn't have. You know, he doesn't seem to have an interest in acting, for example, or mm. directing. Um, he's just really decided, I'm just going to do, I do, you know, he does Gruen, but he really just does stand up. He has a new show every year. Each one is kind of an improvement on the one before. And I, I wish I could have done that. But very few people can do that. And I say, you, and also if you're in comedy, it's not just about talking and jokes. There's so many things. There's sound effects. There's music. There's editing. Editing in particular is such a valuable skill to learn. Directing, working with actors, working on voices. Just, you know, I've just done a lot of different things. I'm not sure whether I could have still been going if I'd just done one thing. And what next is obviously the next uh, question. Well, I want to do another – because Sizzletown has taken up so much time, I haven't written any new stand-up for about a year, so I want to do a new hour of stand-up and I want to keep doing Sizzletown and I'm hoping I'll be <laughs> continuing with Nova. Well, I am aware that I'm possibly too old to be on the Nova network. <laughs> I need to start wearing a – Baseball cap. Baseball cap backwards so then I will at least look like 1994. Uh, And then I'm also, uh, as a side project, I do a lot of work uh, with Damien Cowell Mm. uh, on Damien Cowell's Disco Machine. So he's got an amazing new album coming out and I'm on a few tracks of that. So we're probably going to be touring that at some point. Yeah. So very, very, very busy. Busy, but a lot of it unpaid work. And stand-up, are we likely to see a large-style John Farnham kind of tour? <laughs> I've never been that big with stand-up. I'm, I always think I, – I consider myself a, re, a C-list stand-up who on a good night is a B-list stand-up. I've never been A-list. I've never been – you know, Judith Lucy is my kind – even though she's younger than me, I consider her my stand-up mentor. And, you know, I went and saw her and Denise doing disappointments to – you know, 2,000, 3,000 people. I'm going, this is as many people as I would perform to in a year <laughs> in total in one night. Um, so I'm not quite at that level. I, I'd like to try and get – one day I will do what I should have done 20 years ago and that's stop doing everything else but stand up and just do that for a whole year. You know, Dave O'Neill, I remember Google uh, tweeted last year – that he did 217 stand-up gigs in, in that one year. And if you ever see Dave – I hadn't seen Dave do a headline spot for a while. I saw him about maybe six months ago, and I was blown away. I just went, that is how good you can be when you do this every night. One last question. Who makes you laugh? Oh, so many, so many people uh, – make me laugh. So many of the people I've mentioned, Judith Lucy, uh, for example, Norm MacDonald is someone who makes me laugh. I'm listening to that podcast, 
the worst idea of all time with a couple of New Zealanders called Guy Montgomery and Tim Batt. They make me laugh. Uh, there's a lot of people who make me laugh. Just in podcasting, who? Gilbert Gottfried, he makes me laugh. Mark Maron. Um, yeah, I, I could sit here for like, we could do this again and it would just be me listing people who I find funny. There's wow. so many of them. Well, uh, you're a funny man and I really, really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thanks, uh, Luke. Thanks for having me on your new podcast. This sounds like it's going to be all right. Well, um, let's see. Your, good, your, your episode one. We're in a proper studio. It's good sound. Thank you so much for coming in today. I think the engineer's fallen asleep, but, you know, aside from that, well done. We'll get him back in a sec. Cheers. Thanks, Tony. The Artiste is an original podcast series devised and hosted by me, Luke Gibson. It's produced by myself and Matt Gerber-Korn and is recorded, edited and mixed at Sonic Playground in South Melbourne by Ben Churchill and Matt. Music score by Robert Upwood Find him at robertupwood.com.au. Cover art by Romy Sachs. Keep up to date with The Artiste by following us on Instagram and Facebook, The Artiste Podcast. The Artiste is a co-production between Peppermint Media and Sonic Playground.